0: you're listening to thinking off piste a podcast for adventurers we share inspiring stories from professional mountaineers skiers boarders bikers climbers and hikers who have gone against the grain abandoned their comfort zone and found success through their dare to be different attitude thinking off piste is brought to you by maybe ski a whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucket list ski trips across the globe if you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds head over to maybe to discover what lies beyond your lift pass Today I'll be catching up with Sean Burgess, a Dubai resident who, on the 2nd of March, set up on a challenge to cross seven emirates in just seven days. A journey which ultimately led him to break the Guinness World Record for the fastest crossing of the United Arab Emirates on foot. So Sean, you started your journey in the Saudi border in the Abu Dhabi Emirates on the 2nd of March and you travelled by foot for six days. 21 and a half hours to Vijayra on the east coast of the UAE, covering a total of 650 kilometres. And in the process, you walked your way into the Guinness World Record Books. Congratulations.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Can you describe what state your body was in by day seven?
1: Yeah, so by, by day seven, it was the same sort of physically the same situation that i had been in um, since day four. And uh, the way that I always split the challenge up in my head, now that I've had a bit of time to digest what happened is it was the first three days where I was fresh, both physically and mentally. And um, I was doing sort of hundred kilometers a day and feeling very positive about the whole challenge. And then as soon as we got to the end of day three, I, I broke physically. And what happened is I got pretty severe shin splints, which I've never had before. And, uh, add that to, um, blisters on between my toes, which progressively got worse and worse and worse. And anyone who knows what it's like to have these blisters, anyone who's done sort of like marathon de Sable or any of these ultra marathons, you'll know that sticking your feet into your shoes, even though my shoes were two sizes bigger than I normally wear.
0: Oh,
1: it's excruciating. Every time you start, you know, you've got to go through the first 500 meters of walking on blisters and waiting for things to go numb. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, on top of the shin splints and the blisters, I then had, um, hip flexor uh, inflammation. So it meant that every single step that I took uh, was not only a shorter step, so it limited my pace, but it was also really excruciating. So getting to day four and knowing that I had another probably 400 kilometers and 550,000 steps with the body that was already broken was mentally really tough. And so day four, five, six, and seven were were all very similar physically. Um, But mentally, the good thing about day seven is I had the boost knowing that I didn't have to endure much longer. So whilst the pain was there, I knew that it it wasn't long before I could rest and let my body heal. And the shock that it had been through over those seven days, I needed it to heal. Um, I'm not sure if you you know this, but I I lost 8% of my body fat over seven days. That's a massive
0: amount. In a week (laughs) alone, that's tremendous. Yeah,
1: so so I went from 18% down to uh, 10%. um, And we worked out that I was doing about 35 to 40,000 calories over that week is what I spent, but I was only eating probably two, two and a half thousand calories a day. So my body was just burning its fat reserves. So it's lucky that I went in a little bit chubbier than I came out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, massively so. (laughs) Give me a bit of context to this then. So um, in like 2018, you set sort of a personal goal to completing an epic challenge every year. Um, Walk me through the inspiration behind this idea.
1: So when I was in my late teens as a relay team, I I swam across the channel and it was something that I absolutely loved and I felt very proud of that achievement. And for some reason, I then spent uh, 10 years not doing anything that really inspired me or pushed me or or made me focus on, on something bigger than getting up every day and going to work and going on the occasional holiday. And I just needed to get back into that mindset of, pushing my boundaries and pushing myself outside of my comfort zone and doing something. I, you know, I say that I'm the ordinary guy trying to lead an extraordinary life and you do it by doing these extraordinary challenges. So, I started off by doing uh, Kilimanjaro which I think know a lot of people have done probably a lot of your listeners would have done which is just a phenomenal experience it's such a beautiful mountain and it's great to great to get to um, the summit there the next year I did the Bosphorus swim so you swim from um, one you swim from Asia to Europe um, in Istanbul which again is such a great event for anyone who does open water swimming and hasn't done it I highly recommend it it's such a cool event it's six and a half kilometers of open water swimming in the middle of Istanbul it's just it beautiful beautiful
0: say. yeah how cold is the- The water.
1: Oh, it's not too bad, but the problem is because I train in Dubai, everything is colder.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That kind of set your bar like quite reasonably, and you're like, oh crap.
1: Fair yeah. So for anyone training in the UK, you'll be fine because it's gonna be warmer, but for me, I still got in and it was freezing. But <laughs> yeah. it's just I think you've got something like fifty-seven different nationalities, two and a half thousand people, all shapes and sizes. It's just such a great event. So that was what I did uh 2019. And then 2020 was meant to be Marathon de Saab. So that's the 250 kilometer ultra in the Sahara Desert. But because of COVID, it got postponed. And I went through this period. We did have a lockdown, probably not as severe as you guys have had in the UK, but we did go through a three-month lockdown where I got very fat and lazy and demotivated. (laughs) Did not we all (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I I came out of it. And um, I remember that my my boss, my CEO, challenged me to do 100,000 steps in a day because it was something that was sort of COVID proof. I I could just get out my door, walk around Dubai for 100,000 steps in the middle of August, which was something. Like 45 plus degrees. I think it was 80% humidity. And it took me 16 hours and it absolutely broke me. But I really enjoyed that challenge. And I thought, yeah, that's well- quite
0: inspiring in itself, <laughs> isn't it?
1: Well, I, I didn't know how long it was going to take me. And it actually took me 80 kilometers and 16 hours. But I remember um, I, I don't even know the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. I finished literally my hundred thousandth step as I was walking underneath the Burj Khalifa. So it was a really cool sort of experience.
0: That's mad that it like, landed underneath such a landmark as well. It was, uh, <laughs> I was
1: just a fluke. It literally, because I, I walked all the way down, all the way down the coast. All to, I kind of tried to tie it into like the worst sightseeing tour ever because I saw about three <laughs> things and I did at 16 hours of walking. But it then kind of inspired me to look at other things that were similar in the UAE, knowing that I could do it when COVID was still sort of going on. And that's when I went into sort of a Google search spiral which led me eventually to the uh, Guinness World record that had been attempted but Guinness had set a seven day limit and the guy who'd done it before me, uh, an Emirati national, had taken 14 days. So whilst he'd done it, he didn't get the record. So the record was still open. Nice. And that was nine months ago. I put in my um, application. They got back and said, yeah, these are the rules. Go for it. So
0: Incredible. Yeah. You definitely <laughs> upped your sightseeing game as well by crossing through seven <laughs> Emirates. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> how did you sort of plan the route?
1: he had already done a, uh, he'd already done it and there's there's very little options you have you kind of spend the first 400 kilometers along the E11 highway which is like the M4 but even bigger and with lots more trucks on it and that's basically what you have to do up until Dubai and then at Dubai you've got some variation so whilst 650 kilometers is what it looks like I actually haven't gone through any of my Garmin um, records yet to figure out exactly how far it is and because we had police escorts at one point I actually think it's slightly less uh, which is brilliant like that just, that just helped <laughs> having them there <laughs> um, and then once you get past say Sharjah so you go, sorry, just so you know, you go Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Sharjah, Ajman, Um al-Kawain, Ras al-Khaimah, and then into Fajera. So once you get past Dubai, Sharjah, and into Ajman, you can only have one route that you can go. Okay. So that it's, it is, and it really is on the E11 highway for most of it. So wow,
0: is it legal to walk along the highway? <laughs> Did you have sorry. to get permission for that?
1: Oh, it was a... F- very fluid sort of permission. It was kind of like, we know he's doing it. We can't fully support him, but we also <laughs> are not gonna stop him. Because by I that point it. it becomes so big that the police didn't want to be the ones who stopped me in each cause each emirate has different police forces. Um, and the Abu Dhabi ones were the ones who were most worried. And they did actually hold us up for about three hours because they were so worried about what I was doing, which is great. They, they were like, Look, we we do support him, but we're so worried that he's walking because I was walking on the hard shoulder yeah,
0: with so dangerous. Know, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
1: I I had a thousand trucks pass me two meters away from me every single day, you know, 18 hours of walking on the hard shoulder. It's dangerous. And yeah. Yeah.
0: What kind of looks did you get from the drivers as you passed by?
1: <laughs> well, luckily they were going so fast because the road to uh, from the border to Abu Dhabi is, I think it's 160 km speed limit. So by the time they passed me, I think they just, they were like, oh my God, what, what on earth was that guy? And then they passed <laughs> me and I was gone. Um, but when I got a little bit further in and I got into, uh, say, Ajman and Al Kowain, more people knew what I was doing. So then I started getting honks and waves. and
0: Yay, um, I, motivational yeah, motivational support. exactly
1: and then when I came into Fajera we had the Fajera TV filming us and so by that point everyone then knew and you just had so many of the locals in their patrol their Nissan patrols like honking and beeping and waving and screaming and shouting that was really nice I bet that
0: did wonders for your motivation
1: oh absolutely it's 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 funny because I was just becoming more and more broken, both physically and mentally. And then the last 10 kilometres, all of that adrenaline and all of that support suddenly came, um, just took over. And I I, I don't don't remember feeling any pain for the last 10 kilometres. It's so bizarre.
0: Gosh, that's so cool, though. It's like it's amazing how much of a difference it can impact sort of mental well-being in a way, I suppose. Um, I don't know how you coped with like, so I have a really hard time running around London, um, just running around the streets because of the air pollution. What was it like being on the road? Did it affect you that much being surrounded by car exhausts um, while I was trying to do such a challenge like this?
1: Yeah, so it was 18 hours a day, I was kind of on the move. And even when I was resting, I was literally right by the side of the road. So you're not going to get away from not only all of the exhaust fumes, but also just out here, there's so much dust as well and Uh, sand. Interesting, yeah. So really when I'd blow my nose, I'm oh sorry for anyone listening and hopefully they're not eating, but I, I would blow, I would blow out black. Like it would literally wow. be just, I'd blow my nose, it would be black. Um, luckily I didn't get sort of super sick from that. It just meant that, you know, it was just not a very pleasant experience. Um, yeah. But yeah the, the worst thing for me about being on the road rather than being out in the desert was that every time a, a lorry passed me, it would blow me off my, almost blow me off my feet. Which is fine when you're, you're sort of an hour in, when you're 15 hours in on day four oh. and you're just over it and the, another lorry passes you and you're like, oh, and it takes you, you know, you miss your step and that you have a little sense of humour failure at that point.
0: <laughs> You've got to have your wits about you that you don't, it's probably something you don't really think about as well when you're preparing yourself for a journey like that. It's just like swept off your feet by... The traffic, literally.
1: Yeah. And, and the other thing is that the road is always slightly, I think they call it a camber or a, I call it taper because I don't know the real word. And it's always like that. So for 800 plus thousand steps, I was doing one slightly shorter step on like my right side than it was on my left. And that, it's little things like that that you don't realize with these endurance challenges. It's not it's not the big things. It's not the macro things, the food and the training. It's like that little slight difference of an inch between what your right foot and your left foot's doing just your whole body dynamics just shifts. And that's what causes so much pain.
0: Because it's like repetitive um, repetitive motion ongoing for like so many days. So yeah, I can imagine. Did you have any sort of near misses or any accidents? Or were you pretty, pretty lucky with the whole thing there?
1: No, I don't. Remember having any. So, sorry. So, for a lot of it, I did actually have m- our own support vehicle behind me. So, for okay. the first three days, I did have um, at least one, sometimes two vehicles that were about 20 meters behind me. So, they always gave me that protection. It was only for probably the day that we were going past Abu Dhabi City, I had nothing. And there was one slightly hairy moment where um, a patrol, for some reason, they drive on the hard shoulder sometimes. Um, I'm not sure what they were doing, but it did. Kind of missed me by probably half a meter. I don't think they saw me, and I did have my high vis on. And I thought, oh, that's that's a little bit scary. That worried me slightly. But no, apart from that, the worst thing that I had was middle of day four. I was hallucinating um, for a couple of hours in the morning. Wow. Um, th- <laughs> so we, the police said to us that as you go past Abu Dhabi city, you can't have your support vehicle behind you because you need to be as incognito as possible. So instead of having that support vehicle there and meeting up with my support team, every five kilometers, they were like, look, we're just gonna have to give it 10 or 20 kilometers. And when you're walking at a very slow pace, because your body's broken, that's two or three hours where you're on your own at two, three, 4. a.m and it just feels very lonely and my my mind starts to go slightly and i remember sitting down to get the sand out of my shoes because i had to go off road to avoid some roadworks and um i sat down and i started hallucinating thinking that i was in the middle of an ultra race and i was <laughs> looking down going oh where's my number oh where, where are the competitors am i and i was like am i first or am i last because i can't see anyone and i was looking around and there were no cars it was that was the weirdest experience was so it t- surreal it, oh. <laughs> It's so odd, and then you kind of you have that thing where you you become um, lucid again. You're like, oh, what am I doing, Sean? You're you're an idiot. You're on your own. This is your challenge. Not this isn't some big ultra, yeah. And then you suddenly slip back into it, and you think, oh, where's all the other competitors get? It was a very very bizarre experience.
0: Wow, it's actually quite, it sounds quite cool actually, but then again, it's also yeah. very dangerous considering. <laughs> yeah, and just
1: frightening to be that sort of out of it sometimes. But yeah. it's not as bad as what some people go through. I know when they do the marathon de sables and they're doing their 90k day, they can have real hallucinations. Luckily, I never had any anything too serious.
0: Fair enough. So how much (laughs) ground were you covering each day then? What were your sort of milestones?
1: So the first three days was always going to be the ones where it was, I was the freshest um, mentally and physically. And also it was the one that was the easiest because it is just one straight road. There's very few junctions, there's very few buildings. So the aim for those first three days was to do hundred kilometers a day. And I did, I think 111 on the first day. 104 on the second day and then something like 95 on the third day. So I, I was in a really good position, but I was an idiot and I pushed it too hard and I let my ego get in the way. And I ran a lot of it or I ran a lot of it, ran more than I planned for. And it absolutely broke me. And there's a few things that I would do differently. One of them is I would, I probably wouldn't run any of it if I was to ever do it again, which I hopefully <laughs> never will do it again. But I think I need to take, I should have taken my ego out of it, not run. And my body would have lasted a lot longer. And actually, because I walk at quite a fast pace, I wouldn't have lost many hours. It probably meant instead of doing 16 hours for those first three days, I did 18 hours. But instead of breaking, I would have physically been a lot better condition going into the last four days. So, yeah, 300 yeah. kilometers plus on the first three days. And then um, I was tr- my aim was to do 80 kilometers or over 80 kilometers on day four, five, six and seven, which would have got me into uh, Fajera around halfway through day seven. The problem that we had is we went, when we were going through Abu Dhabi, we lost those three hours for the police stopping us. And then we also, um, the road network became a lot more complicated and naturally my whole pace just slowed massively. So day four, we only did about 70, 75. And mentally that was such a struggle for me because I pushed it so hard for those first three days. And I'd only slept for probably three or four hours collectively because my sleeping situation was such a problem. To get to day four, mentally and physically broken, and then to do such a rubbish day and lose so much of the buffer that I built up, that was by far the worst, that was my darkest day, was day four, because I still knew, it's not like it's day six and you think, oh, I've just got to suck it up for another hundred kilometers. I was still looking at 350, 400 kilometers and I was watching as the record was slipping out of my fingers. Oh,
0: so traumatic.
1: It is, it (laughs) really is. And it's just that horrible feeling of what's the whole point in this then? Why am I doing this? You know, I'm going to get to Fajera, I'm going to miss it, miss it by six hours. And, you know, all this commitment that my supporters have done, my sponsors, everyone, and I'm gonna fail. And that was a horrible moment to be in. But luckily I had a good support team who kind of boosted me up again. Yeah. And then we just we just sucked it up and got on with it.
0: I feel like sleep deprivation was such a like important factor in this um, in this journey. How were you sort of camped out and set up in terms of your sleeping situation? Did you were you did you like pack all of that into your support vehicles and pitch up or what did that look like
1: yeah so so what we did is the support team at one point we had sort of seven or eight vehicles including an rv and things but that was for the support team to sleep in i always wanted this okay. to be very rustic so what we did is we got a denali truck uh, like a four by four put all the seats down in the back and we put a mattress in the back and we thought that was the best idea and in hindsight and this is this is what i love about these challenges is this is not my first and last challenge this is just my first of many of my that i'm going to go on in my life. And the, the biggest lesson that I learned along with getting my ego out of the running is to sort your sleeping situation out and practice it because that caused me probably the biggest issues because I didn't sleep. I didn't repair
0: Yeah. And
1: because I was in so much pain because I didn't repair. I then didn't sleep. That's why it's like this vicious cycle. So what we did is we put a single mattress in the back of this Denali and then I just try and sleep for an hour or two in each of my rest periods. But the problem that you have is, is that although it's a massive truck, I also had three support guys in it, my brother and uh, Jay and John, plus myself and having three guys in a truck trying to sleep. And then you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, people are moving, they're rustling, they're snoring.
0: It's just not and a also, good night's sleep, is it? Yeah,
1: It's just terrible. <laughs> and what ended up happening is because they had to put their seats up as well. My feet ended up getting pushed against the back, uh, the window. So my hips thing were in oh so much nice. pain, she it in. So it, it took me until day five or night five to have a real diva moment where I'm like, I'm not sleeping <laughs> on the truck. I'm sleeping on the ground and I have my best sleep because I literally really? just grabbed my, grabbed the mattress, put it on the floor, grabbed my sleeping bag. And I just slept out in the open. And I wish I'd done that from the start, but
0: Fair enough.
1: You do you think you'd do
0: that next time then, uh, on your like yeah. next adventure? Maybe get like a tent and like pitch up.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think that the the other difference that we had is because it was it got hotter and hotter. And whilst it's not as hot as the summer here, it's too hot for me to walk between like 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Because um, also I'm quite a big guy as well. It's it's like I, I suffer with the heat a lot more than maybe ultra runners do. Uh, what I would do is I would start it, I'd be very strict and say, I'm not pushing this past January. And if I did it in January, then I'd have, I would have done a longer day period and then slept longer at night. So what I was trying to do is eight hours on four hours off because I was trying to avoid that four hours during the middle of the day and then the four hours at night. Whereas if I did this again in January, I could have walked throughout the whole day. So got up at say 4 a.m., walked until maybe 10 p.m., and then had a six hour block. So had a better sleep, longer sleep, more rest. You just, you just, you know, all these things you learn and you, you experience. And again, I I hope I never have to do this again because I hope that somebody comes along and smashes my record (laughs) by like two days. If somebody comes along and and beats me by like two hours, then I'm going to have to do it again. And all of the things (laughs) I've learned (laughs) um, I'll, I'll put into practice.
0: Something that I thought was perhaps quite genius of you was the decision to pack sort of a portable. Was it an ice bath you had yeah. in your in your RV? And obviously yeah. that's a great idea because it like um, speeds up um, recovery like by reducing inflammation. Um, how did it feel to get into that after doing like a hundred plus kilometers a day? <laughs>
1: Oh, it was amazing, especially as I'd normally, I wouldn't use it at my night rest. I'd always use it at my day rest. So the heat was literally 30 plus and I'd normally be coming in, as you say, after a big sort of, oh yeah, like 90 kilometer session, 100 kilometer session. And just the thought, uh, that's what we keep going <laughs> in the last 10K is just jumping into the ice bath and just sitting there. And oh, it was, it was a great experience for those that we used it for the first three or four days. And then as we got into the cities, we couldn't put it anywhere. So we actually lost the use of it, but yeah, there's... First three days, it really did help with the recovery. But there was one really weird moment that I had on my third day. I had a physio come out to the site to try and fix like all the problems that I was having after 300 kilometers. And he really did sort of of massage and and knead everything out of me. And he worked on my hip flexors and my calves. And I think he just got all of the toxins out and trying to get into my lymph nodes to try and process it. And then he chucked me in the ice bath for 15 minutes. And when I got out, I couldn't stop shaking. And I mean, I've never had. the shakes like that before and, wow. and basically all of those toxins and all of that rubbish he'd put out of my muscles into my bloodstream combined with sitting in an ice bath for 15 minutes I think he just said your body's in shock and I was shaking wow. for like five minutes I just couldn't stop shaking it was weird so weird
0: god the, ex- the like roller coaster of it like I don't know yeah. experiences that your body was going through on that day alone yeah. and then those few hours must have been all over oh, the place
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely
0: so tell me a bit more about sort of like the injuries then you uh, you'd never had shin splints before this journey had you and then you got these on sort of around day three um not to mention the sort of inflame the inflammation of your calf and did you mention hip flexor issues as well yeah how yeah. are you managing the pain inflicted by these injuries on the journey oh
1: i th- I think it just got to a point where I just had to suck it up. You know, you, yeah. I, it's funny when you, when you finish it, you look back and sometimes I think, how on earth did I, did I do that? How on earth did I get up on day four? Knew I had, you know, probably 60, 70 hours and you know, four or 500,000 steps to do. And every single one of them is going to be excruciating. You just kind of suck it up. And I think I've got a stubbornness about it. And also it became so much more, this always started as a personal challenge and then by, Day three and four, it became so much more about my support team. And um, one of the things I've mentioned uh, is that one of the guys on the support team had lost his brother to to cancer about a year ago. Another one, um, one of our paramedics, Brian, he lost his sister to COVID recently. And because of the relationship that I had with my brother, which is very, very close, and my brother was there as my lead support person, and my brother supported me in those toughest times, I think for those two especially, but also for the entire support team, this became such an emotional journey for them. Um, after a really difficult year, not only with with what had happened there, but also with COVID generally, that for me, it became about delivering for them. That yeah. Our paramedic, one of them, uh, Dennis, he was only meant to be there for two days and he ended up calling his wife and saying, I've got to stay till the end now because <laughs> I have to, I'm, I'm so invested in this journey. And, so by day four, every step and every bit of pain just became about right. I've got to deliver for these people who've committed so much. And they're all volunteers, so none of them are getting paid as well, which again is another. I say I have to be on that beach in Fajera under seven days, even if it's one minute under seven days, because I want them to be involved in this world record and talk about it and be proud of what they've done here. So that so I think I kind of switched off from that pain. And also <laughs> what I would do is I would just consider that every step is going to be excruciating. So whenever a step wasn't, I kind of <laughs> <laughs> it. and I do this other thing where I would do a kilometre and if the kilometre started hurting which it normally would after about 100 metres I was like it's fine because I've only got to do another 900 metres and I can do that I can suck up pain for 900 metres when I got to the end of that kilometer, if it was if I was in so much pain I had to stop, I'd give myself one minute. So I stop for a minute and just be like, right, fine. And then you start again because you know you're only ever going to have to experience pain for a kilometer. But if you're feeling fine, you like carry on for another kilometer. And it's these little mind games. It's that little good little mental games.
0: trickery, yeah. yeah
1: <laughs> exactly. And and my hip flexor issues that so that became shin splints, it's just rest. That's the only way you can repair them. And I had my running coach, Rob, come out to me and that, he was like, look. You need to tell me when you stop walking. Do your hip, do your shin splints stop being painful? And I'm like, yes. He's like, fine. Then there's they're, they're just it's just going to suck. But there's nothing wrong. This is not bone. This is not ligament. It's just it's just going to hurt. But you're not causing any long term damage. Um, so I was like, fine. I can suck That's up so the, shin So reassuring. <laughs> it really yeah. is. It, it, which was great to have him there. And also just a quick story about Rob as well. When we got to day three, I was really worried because my my body had been compounding the pain and the degeneration over those three days so day two was twice as bad as day one day three was twice as bad as day two and in a kind of panic i rang him and i was like rob i feel like day four is going to be twice as bad as day three and i'm not sure i can handle that and it's just going to get progressively worse and he was he said to me do not panic do not worry because now your body has realized that you're this is the new normal it will figure itself out your body will change and adapt very quickly and whilst I got the shin splints and hip flexor issues, muscular-wise and just sort of general physical health, he was absolutely right. Day three and was the worst, and it, everything just kind of leveled off after that. So I didn't get progressively worse. I my mean, muscles didn't get worse. My my hem, hamstrings, my it's just the shin splints sucked and my hip flexors sucked, but otherwise, and the blisters sucked, but otherwise... physiologically, I was fine from day three onwards. And what was quite great is I did a body analysis before the challenge and I did one after it. Not only did it find that 8% loss in body fat, but it also showed that I put on um, two kilograms of muscle in both of my legs. And I've got big legs anyway, so I didn't realize I could put on any more muscle. (laughs) Yeah. So my, my upper body stayed the same. My torso lost two kilograms, but yeah. my legs put on in each leg. And <laughs> it's just amazing how quickly your body adapts. And, um, yeah, I, I, yeah and I, Ross, I, I read the Ross Edgeley book where he swam around the UK and you see how his body adapts so quickly to being in the water for I don't know 16 hours a day. And I felt like my body figured out, right, this guy is going to be walking for 90 kilometers a day. We've got to fix him we've got to make sure he can do this and that was really 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 reassuring to hear that from my running coach but
0: for sure yeah it's yeah (laughs) it was really good that you had um this sort of team of sort of physiotherapists and medical practitioners and so forth who could support you along the way because um obviously the one thing that would be the most terrifying thought would be like long-term permanent damage but the fact that you could be sort of coached along with that sort of input probably made it much more like bearable and like doable
1: yeah so if so another thing that i would have done you know learning all these lessons and is i would have had a physio full-time so yeah so the physio i had one come out on on day three and i didn't have another one until uh day five um and she was phenomenal actually because what happened is i'd been walking for four days and 400 kilometers about 400 kilometers along essentially a straight road. Okay, it was, it was tapered slightly in, there were curbs, but generally I, I wasn't having to lift my feet too high. I could sort of shuffle along. What happened when I got into Dubai, Sharjah and Ajman is I suddenly went into the city and I was having to navigate roundabouts and pavements and roadworks and suddenly going from sort of shuffling and, and not having to raise your feet to having to step up, twist, turn. That destroyed what was left of my body. So by, by day five, I remember I got to um, Ajman which is was the fourth emirates and we were in the middle of ashman on the basically on the high streets on the main road and i just stopped i just couldn't move my body forward and by this point the hip flexor issues were so severe that i just i literally just couldn't move sounds Um,
0: scary
1: and, and luckily this she was absolutely amazing she drove all the way out from dubai through the traffic it took her a couple hours to get to me she brought her uh physio bed and she puts it on the middle of the street in the middle of rush hour with all these people on <laughs> cars and she uh, she not only gave me a quick massage but she also dry needled my hip flexors my quads and my calves just to relieve enough tension that I could move my body for another 15 kilometers to the next camp. And then when we got to that camp, she gave me some acupuncture and again dry needled everything. And it wow. just gave me the respite and gave me enough to then and that was my best sleep is that's the one where I slept outside. <laughs> and I slept for two hours and I was like a new man in the morning. And I beautiful. <laughs> you know, I look at these people who were who committed to the challenge for absolutely no gain for themselves. Like I, you know, I wouldn't have done it without without every single one of them. But in particular like I look at these moments and her coming out at that point was probably the difference between me doing it and not doing it. Um, There's another point on day four where my brother walks with me for three hours um, because I was really struggling mentally. And again, you look at these moments and you just think I wouldn't have done it without them.
0: Um, Take me back to that moment then. So your body seized up, you couldn't walk, barely talk. mm. What was going through your mind as you went into this?
1: Like what were you thinking
0: about in the moment?
1: Frustration, I think. I'm so, <laughs> yeah. just frustrated at myself, frustrated at my body, frustrated at you know, looking back of how I could have protected myself better, how I could have managed my body better. Um, fear and embarrassment, you know, at that really? point, you know, yeah, you're getting to that point where you, you know, I was never, you know, I only finished two and a half hours before the time cap, and you know, Custing I could, have, I could yeah. have, yeah, every 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 decision that you make at that point, an extra hour in trying to sleep it's just like, that's an hour that I could potentially be over the record. And it was only by literally by the last day where I knew that I had 90 kilometers, 92 kilometers to go. And I had 24 hours to do it. I'm like, I can do this. Like, I know I can do it no matter what life throws at me now. I'll suck it up. But when you're at day four and five, you don't have that confidence. And so there is that fear of, embarrassment and although people kept telling me this is about you and your challenge and if you don't do it it's like yeah but I still I would still be embarrassed so emotionally
0: invested in it yeah exactly and so acupuncture as well that's really interesting so that's a quite an interesting one because it's designed to sort of stimulate the central nervous system um, and I think it's got sort of mental and emotional benefits as well as the physical benefits so what was the like treatment like because I've never had it before but I'm quite interested in it is it do you vouch for it
1: yeah. So, with the, well, it just relaxed me. So, not only she was saying that the dry needling was to obviously release my 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 muscles. So the shin splints were caused because my calves were. And you should have seen. I'll, I'll send you a photo actually of, of what my legs looked like afterwards, and they just looked like two sausages because my my calves, <laughs> my, my calves, my ankles, and my feet were so swollen that there's no, you can't see any of the joints. It's it's bizarre. It's really, it's a really weird experience. And that was, she was saying that my, my calves are so tight and so rock hard that they're not, that that's what's causing the the shin splints. So she said, dry needling those, release them. It, It helps. Same with the hips. It's like, like having that, like, this is people get squeamish, but I, by this point I was like, just do whatever you need to do and fix me, but actually putting a needle into your hip flexor, that is, yeah, <laughs> oh, <that> horrible. Is. <laughs> but the, the acupuncture was completely different. So she did it in, in my lower back and my top of my bum. And by that point I was so gone mentally. I, I, this is one of the things I do remember. And I remember I I can barely speak and I think they've got it on camera, the documentary crew, and I literally, I, I just, I'm, I can't, I can't talk. I'm just so gone five days in almost 500 kilometers. I probably had five hours sleep collectively at that point. And I, I'm literally just there and there's nothing to me. I just can't say anything. Wow. So given the acupuncture, it just put me in a state where I just went to sleep straight away and I slept for two hours and I was like, oh, brilliant. Amazing. Finally at <laughs> peace. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I would vouch for it, for the acupuncture stuff. And since then I've done a little bit more research and it, i I've seen that it is so good for you. So I'm going to do a lot more dry needling and acupuncture, just relax my whole body.
0: And on day seven, um, you had about 90 kilometres to do in about 26 hours. And after the first sort of 38, you decided to stop and have like set up camp um, and have some sleep in order to prep for a big day the next day. That was quite a bold decision of yours. What (laughs) provoked that? Was that just the realisation that rest was actually all your body really needed? Or was there more to it than that?
1: Yeah, I think it was. And I think it was the confidence in myself knowing that if I woke up at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning and I had X amount to do, as long as the maths worked out, which it did, I was absolutely fine. So it got to the point where... I was walking on this truck road and it had a, had an incline. It wasn't the incline that I ended up doing because that was savage, but it, it was still an incline and it was getting cold. And what was happening is every truck that passed me would blow cold air up my entire back of my body. And no matter what I was wearing, it was just seizing everything up.
0: Chilling. Oh. <laughs> that's, yeah.
1: That's and, 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 and I just thought, and I spoke to my brother and by that point, he knew what I was like as well. And I was like, look, Carlo, I just don't. There's no point me carrying on. My pace is so slow right now. I'm just going to get cold and stiff. I'm not going to sleep properly. I'd rather just go to sleep now and get up and do a massive day tomorrow. Um, And he completely supported it. And other people in the support crew, funnily enough, were like, I don't think you should do that. I think you should carry on. And Carlo's like, "Nope. he's going to do this. And then he's going to get up early and he's going to do this record. And so we got up at one o'clock in the morning. And I think I had 52 kilometers at that point. And so my days were slightly different because we started at – at 3 p.m. My days were always 3 p.m. to 3 p.m. So okay. I, I was setting off at 1 a.m. I had until 3 p.m. So I had 14 hours to do these 52 kilometers. And the first 18 kilometers were uphill. And I, I mean, it was a steep incline up to Masafi. The trucks were in like their first gear, like trying to get up this hill. And I'm there. <laughs> they're like just trying to get up there. But I set this sort of goal for myself, which is I'm not going to stop until I get to the top. So these 18 kilometers uphill, literally my legs were burning. It was in the middle of, it was like 1 a.m. until about 5 a.m. So it was in the dark. I was on my own. I was like, Oh my God, I just got to suck this up. And I did. And that's probably one of the proudest moments of the challenge for me. And not only other periods where I kind of mentally sucked it up, but this one, I was like last day I needed to do it. I could have probably rested halfway up and still done the record, but no, no, I wanted to do those 18 kilometers all on my own, all the way uphill. Get to the top. I then slept for like 10 minutes.
0: <laughs> quick power um, nap. Quick power nap, yeah. yeah. And then
1: I and then I started down to Fajera. But yeah, that, that was kind of a real proud moment that even when things got so tough mentally and physically, I could still keep pushing um to the end. And uh, but but then I got to the top and I had 34 kilometers, or whatever it was, I think it's about 34 kilometers, into Fajera, of which 30 of them were downhill. And I was really looking forward to going downhill until I got shin splints. And then it was like no. the worst experience 30 kilometers downhill on shin splints.
0: That was oh. the ultimate test, like the, the big test at the end for you, wasn't it?
1: It was, because I was hoping to run it. When I planned this all out, I'm like, yeah, I'll run down into Fujinera. It would be amazing. And then literally I was hobbling downhill, <laughs> limping. And I was like, oh, no. And then it started getting hot. And yeah.
0: It's it like was. expectations versus reality scene would be great right then. <laughs>
1: Exactly, I know. I know. It's so, it just such a shame, but I needed it to be hard. If it wasn't hard, then it wouldn't have been worth it, in my opinion.
0: Can you describe how you were feeling as you arrived into Fajera?
1: Oh, very, very emotional. And as my my wife would tell me, I do not cry easily. But I have to say that as I was walking, I didn't cry on the beach uh, like my brother did. He's he's the emotional one out of the two of us. So um, he he had his moment. I didn't actually cry on the beach. I think I was so just in so much shock at that point. And it's just a really weird experience. I'm still trying to get my head around what happened on the beach as far as, I I, yeah, it wasn't as emotional as I thought it was, but funny enough, walking up about three kilometers out, I I sent a message to my support crew um, that basically said, look, I I don't know what the rest of today is going to be like, because once I get there, I've got to do this interview with this uh, newspaper and we're obviously might all split up. And I just want to say, I wouldn't be in this position without every single one of you and it's funny because my brother noticed it but nobody else did is that I started to choke up and I started to, to yeah,
0: yeah. And,
1: and I was meant to do like a really long message to them all and thank each one of them and but no I couldn't I literally <laughs> put it out. That's probably the last
0: <laughs> thing you were thinking about trying to get out right at that point yeah after the exhaustion and the emotion that's yeah so, that's amazing though um yeah. and your brother walked the last kilometer with you didn't he? Uh, Can you take me back to that moment that when you were with him, uh, like what you were feeling and what you were thinking about as you sort of stopped the clock two and a half hours before the deadline for the Guinness World Record achievement?
1: (laughs) Oh, it was just such, it was it was nine months worth of planning and so much stress. And and it had been delayed two or three times. And we thought that it mm-hmm. might not even happen because we thought the police would stop us immediately. And luckily, Gino, who's a, who's the event organizer, and basically, we, you know, I say that I wouldn't have got to the end without people like Carlo and other people, but I wouldn't have even had a challenge without Gino. And for him to put this whole thing together was just incredible. But the stresses that came with that, the stress of the seven days physically and mentally, just that relief of getting there and I think it felt a little bit like an anticlimax though as well once I got onto the beach and I think that's the best way to describe it is, is leading up to it it was just adrenaline and emotion and then once I got there it's like oh it's over what am I going to do with myself now and it's <laughs> like nine months worth of planning and thinking about solely one thing and then suddenly it's gone or suddenly it's been achieved you're like wow Yeah, what do I do with myself now? What do I wake up tomorrow and think about if it's not this? It's very Yeah, it's like a
0: massive blank space after that, isn't there? You only plan as far as getting there. And then I guess you just need to start working on the next adventure, don't you?
1: Well, that's what a lot of people say is uh, everyone who does these big epic challenges, whether it's climbing Everest or going to the poles and and you come back and it's suddenly like, yeah, you have these real, not depression, but low moments where you have to start planning the next thing because you don't know what to do yourself otherwise. So
0: Yeah. And was there ever any point along this whole journey where you genuinely considered throwing the towel in and giving up or was that just not an option for you?
1: Okay. No, it was, it was never an option. It just, I knew that even if I had to crawl my way to Fajera, I would. I think that the, the only fear was the embarrassment if I didn't get the record, but never a, there was never a doubt in my mind. Even if I didn't do 90 kilometres a day and I had to do 20 or 30 and I, it took me three weeks, there was absolutely nothing in me that I ever thought about giving in because mm-hmm. it was just pain. And I know that you can, you can deal a lot with pain. And I spoke to, so my brother is a PT and he's also a life coach. And we spoke a lot when we were walking along about the psychology around pain. And it's kind of like, as long as it's not damaging your body long-term, you're just, it's just pain. You can just it's deal like with it. It's like
0: a mental construct in a way.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what ended up happening. I look back now on what I physically went through and mentally went through uh, pain-wise, and I think what ended up happening is I just got used to it. I just got used to that being what my body was going to have to go through. So it just didn't really phase me. It's just annoying in the end that I couldn't <laughs> push my body hard enough. And I think that's what's so frustrating now is I couldn't go faster. I couldn't do my normal walking pace because my body mm-hmm. broke down. So that was a frustration. But no, there was never a point where I thought I wasn't going to do it. And also, my brother wouldn't have let me.
0: <laughs> good um the support team's really amazing that uh, like the fact that you had them with them for the journey uh, and also they joined you for the walk a few times uh, your brother yep. joined a few times and then your wife joined you I think on the fifth day what yes. kind of change of dynamic does that bring
1: it was it was quite interesting so uh, this is again a difference between um having my brother there and having the support crew there because some of the support crew weren't too sure about her being there um, they thought that it would put my mind out and uh, and I'd reset in a negative way. But for me, it reset in a very positive way. It brought me a little bit back to normality. After having four and a half days, five days of sort of roughing it and being um, being quite a raw challenge, it just brought me back to kind of what was important as and spending two or three hours with her, walking through Dubai, walking through where I train every day, um, just mattered so much. And I know that, and actually funny enough, the support team that were initially um negative or not supportive of it they actually said you know do you know what you came out of that in a much more positive place than you went into seeing her get, so it really yeah. did help um but also it did change the dynamics slightly on these epic challenges you don't normally take a kind of respite right in the middle of, or day five and get to see your <laughs> wife and, and get to have normality and get to a have a shower and, yeah yeah <laughs> But it did help. And then going into those next two and a half days, I, I, I did need that. Um, Good.
0: Yeah. What kind of things do you talk about? Would you talk about the challenge or would you use it as a sort of escapism to like talk about other things and distract yourself from the day to day, like monotony of the walking in a way?
1: Uh, with, with when I met my wife or just With your wife with the, or like yeah. with
0: your brother or anyone who sort of joined you for the actual walking part?
1: yeah so i i spend a huge amount of time in my own head and i'm very analytical so people asked what i whether i listen to audio books or music and i didn't for the first three days partly because i broke my headphones on the way down to the actual challenge start. so i, didn't oh have I, had, to, <laughs> so I had to wait for my wife to bring me a, a spare pair when i got into dubai but yeah. i also i i run the numbers constantly in my head so i'm constantly planning constantly i've got my phone out um doing like notes and what pace I need to set. And that's just how I operate. And I feel very comfortable in that space. So I didn't actually need to be listening to audio books and things. It was I was quite nice, just constantly pacing myself. Yeah. But yeah, when I, when I did meet them, it was, if I'm, if I was walking with my brother, it would normally be half of the plan for the day was, you know, where's the camps where, because also a lot of this wasn't set before we started because we didn't, because we didn't really have permission, but we sort of did have permission. Everything was very fluid. So And sometimes I'd be kept in the dark by the support team. Um, which Carlo was great at kind of forcing them to give me information, which was Sean needs to know where the camp is. To know <laughs> it's mentally. kind of
0: important today. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
1: <laughs> he needs to know where he's going, like what, what, how far he's got to go. And um, but the other half would then be spent just chatting about everything, chatting about old stories. Um, we spent a lot of time together when I was in my late teens and early twenties in Croyd in North Devon, and there's just funny stories there. And also, we've got ambitions ourselves for the future to yeah do things good. together. So, I mean. That was nice. With my wife, she she kept sort of uh, speaking about uh, what she's been up to and then going, oh, I'm so sorry. Should we talk about the challenge? And I'm like, no, no, please <laughs> just talk about anything but the challenge. Tell me what you've done today. Tell me what the cats are up to. Tell me how work's going. It was just nice to escape. I think that's like.
0: what I would want. Just like day to day random chat nothing yep. too heavy nice and light um, At one point mid journey you were required uh, you required a larger pair of shoes because your feet had swollen up so much didn't they did you ever imagine that would happen i don't think i would have ever sort of anticipated <laughs> that if it was me
1: well it's so i adidas have been absolutely phenomenal for the whole the whole challenge and they gave me so many pairs of shoes but what <laughs> ended up happening is so and i and i had planned already to i think i'm like a 10 and a half and i had a 10 and a half I had 11s and I had 11 and a halves. uh, And I was like, that'd be absolutely fine. So I've got size two bigger. But what ended up happening is about two weeks before I started the challenge, I changed the socks that I was wearing, which were actually anti-blister socks. And although I complained about the blisters around my toes, people who've done ultras and actually I went to MediClinic, um, one of the hospitals out here, they couldn't believe how good my feet were considering that I'd done.
0: Really? 650
1: yeah. They were, they were just wow. like, your feet are in such good state. Like, <laughs> they're like, okay. Like you're, I
0: bet you're like, what?
1: I know. I really I was like, I should scuff them up a little bit more. But what happened was, okay, the toes were all blistered and literally every single toe. And there was a, there's my little toe was in a particularly nasty position. They thought they might need to give me antibiotics for, but, Generally, the soles and the back of my foot and the pads were in really good shape, but it's because these socks were so thick and they created a layer that sort of was smooth. So the toes are different because they were rubbing against each other, whereas the sole and stuff was just rubbing against the socks, so no blister. But they were so thick that the plan for the shoes was like, oh no, I've now lost my bigger shoe because my socks. <laughs> so it did. It got to about yeah. day three and I rang uh, Lee Ryan, who's the captain of the Adidas Runners Club out here. And I was like, uh, Lee, do you think I could get a delivery of another pair of shoes? And they were brilliant. they were like, yeah, we'll sort you out. And so I got this new, and I'd also been wearing these bright pink shoes. And suddenly I got these bright yellow shoes and everyone's <laughs> like, nobody is going to miss you now the roads uh, that's
0: hilarious yeah uh, it's kind of a staple little like symbol of you on your way Like, look out for the guy with the bright colored shoes <laughs> exactly he's yeah. on a journey <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to take a minute to talk about sort of the views and so forth as you pass through all seven emirates um how much did the scenery vary day by day can you describe uh, describe the contrast of landscapes and the sights you saw
1: yeah, so for the first three days, it was pretty epic. Although you're walking along a, a four lane or three lane highway, um, and there's uh, lighting pylons and, uh, sorry, electricity pylons and lights, which makes it a little bit less rugged than being right out in the desert. It was still pretty beautiful when you'd have the sunrise and you'd be looking over the empty quarter. And not many people in the UAE go to this area because it's right by the Saudi border and there's not a huge amount there. There's Liwa Desert, which is a little bit sort of. 100 kilometers um, inland but nobody sees this part and I think it was a, a very unique experience and again Lee from, from Adidas he set uh, six world records himself and he's attempting another one in a couple wow. of weeks I know so he he's holds the record for uh, things like 24 hour the most burpees in 24 hours Crikey. and um, the fastest marathon pushing uh, twins in a buggy and he's trying to set one in <laughs> a week or two's time for the furthest distance on a treadmill like he's just incredible wow. he's an incredible a athlete hero. Yeah. Yeah, And he was great because he said to me, he's like, Sean, I know what you're like and you will get in, you'll put your head down and you'll just walk. He said, but you've got to take a moment sometimes to remember what you're doing and why you're doing it and keep your head up. And the best advice he gave me was to leave like notes to myself. So sometimes I would, there would be a moment where I'd suddenly feel like, wow, this is where I am. This is absolutely incredible. And I'd leave a little note saying, you know, Remember, Sean, you're day two. You're doing this incredible challenge. Whether you are successful or not successful, just feel so lucky that you're here. And that did remind me to be very appreciative of, of the experience that I was going for. But yeah, for the first three days, it was very much just... Desert on one side, a little bit of sea sometimes on the other, a lot of trucks and just mm. the road. <laughs> um, but then as we got into Abu Dhabi City, we then went past the airport and it and also it got to areas that I know really well. And I think that's the weirdest thing is going down a road that I've driven probably a hundred times <laughs> and we're just like, wow. Yeah. It's- yeah, and then coming into like home Dubai, turf. Yeah. it does. Coming into Dubai, I I walked along the kite beach running track, which probably wasn't the quickest route and the most efficient. It would have been more efficient to walk down the road, but I wanted to do that because that's the that's the track that I train on three or four times a week. Um, and I think what was the weirdest thing, and I was walking with Frankie at the time, my wife, is we were walking past people who were out going for like a five k run, and she's like. Do you think any of them have any idea that you've just done like 450 kilometers in four days?
0: <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> don't not. Don't yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny.
1: And then when you get into Sharjah and Ajman, it's super built up, like it's a real, real city. And then you're back into Umm Al and Ras Al Khaimah, which are uh, sort of two lane or three lane highways again. And so I didn't see a huge amount of. Uh, but then actually coming up into the uh, up into the mountains, into Masafi, and then down into Fajera, that was beautiful. Because and this was part of why I wanted to do the documentary, is to show people who aren't from the UAE and even people who are here in the UAE that it's not just Dubai. Like there's so many beautiful parts of this country, from the empty quarter and the the oceans and then the mountains and. And it's just, it's just a beautiful country, Um, but possibly not along the E-11 highway. There are are (laughs) better places to go.
0: (laughs) Which ironically is probably like where everyone's driving to get like commute to work or something. And everyone, everyone knows that one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: What's one of the biggest learnings you took away from the experience, would you say?
1: Oh, I definitely say that the, the big things are to take my ego out of it. Um, I think that I in my head I just I I felt like I needed to run. I felt embarrassed being, oh, he just walked it. But then I need to be sensible about, about these things. And actually, walking it probably would have got in quicker and I probably would have done it in six and a half days or or even less. And that's a massive learning thing for me. And it's a it's a growing up thing. And I used to do this because I used to do CrossFit quite a lot and again, it'd be the same thing of always go heavy, always go hard, always lift as much as you can. And then I get injured and it's, it's learning to just respect my body a little bit more and understand I just can't keep going and going and going and going all the time that actually bring it back, tapering it back, being more sensible actually gives you a lot more longevity and probably means you're more successful. So that's one thing. And then the other is, is around the sleep. Um, I need to, you know, having the time to move is great, but having the time to rest and, being as efficient as you can in those rest periods, which means getting quality sleep is so important. And then the other thing is I'd have a physio on site, um, for a challenge like this, because you know, your body physically is breaking down so quickly that to have somebody who can quickly do something that just gives you an extra 10 kilometers or an extra 15 kilometers for that day, massively important. So I'd say those are the three biggest things that I would, I would change.
0: Amazing. Out of interest, how long did it take after the race for your body to recover, especially from <laughs> the pain of so like shin splints and so forth? So
1: what's it been now? It's probably been two and a half weeks, I think. Two and a half weeks? Yeah, about two and a half weeks. So it took two weeks for my shin splints to stop throbbing. And for the first week, I mean they would I wouldn't be able to sleep. They would throb so much wow. and I could barely walk. It took about a week for the swelling to go down as well.
0: Crikey.
1: Um my, <laughs> oh. my, my blisters healed relatively quickly. That was probably a week, which again, I felt like, oh, like, uh, you know, I wanted more, more battle wounds. I wanted people to be like, oh, you suffered really badly. <laughs> and that also comes to another thing is that what I realized on social media is I'm, I'm really bad at social media. So whenever I do my, and also you always want to give the most positive image. So whenever I do the videos on social media, it would always be very positive. It'd be middle of the day. I'd be like happy. It'd be the sun. I'd be like, hey guys, how are you doing? <laughs> I never did any videos in the darkest times. And that's probably a mistake because people at the end were like, oh, it's easy. You know, you're always smiling. So that's a lesson learned. <laughs> and, but anyway, I, I digress. The, the bit that got me the worst was my sleeping pattern. So I would, for about two weeks, I'd say that it only stopped about half a week ago, is that I would only be able to sleep for like one hour at a time or two hours at a time. And then I'd wake up in literally a pool of sweat, thinking that I had another hundred kilometers to go. My my mind was just so in the challenge. I think every time I slept, it kind of reset back to the challenge and That's I just couldn't get out of it. it. It was nuts, like nothing I could do. I, I was trying to take melatonin. I was trying to take like um, sleeping, just to try and have an eight hour block of sleep to reset. It just didn't work.
0: In a movie, that would be like the reoccurring nightmare that keeps coming yeah. back and you keep waking yeah. up and like groundhog day of it's, panic yeah. at the end. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah so that, that yeah just about recovered now
0: <laughs> yeah and what did you learn about your body or your mind's ability to endure did that change from your opinion at the very start of the race
1: yeah it did like this is this is all past of I know it sounds um oh, a bit sort of like I, I want to punish myself but part of this challenge was also about figuring out where my boundaries were and I definitely pushed past my preconceived boundaries of what i could do physically and mentally um i think and mentally especially because that's what it comes down to really is you know physically you can just keep going as long as mentally you're strong enough just to keep pushing and i think that there are times when i look back now and i was proud of you know, having literally an hour's sleep and not wanting to move, but lacing up my trainers and just starting and spending three hours, just miserable, but then knowing that things would get better. And I think that's what I learned is that, yeah, I can push a lot harder and I want to spend the next, at some point in the future, being in, in big mountains and doing some big, big endurance challenges, sometimes when I'm on my own. And I think that learning, building this foundation of understanding that I can push forward and push on in pain has, has sort of really given me the confidence to do those challenges as well. Um, so yeah, I, that that's kind of what I learned is that I think, and we all are stronger than I think we all perceive. So until you put yourself in that position, you know, you, you never really test it. So yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of moments there where I just kept going.
0: And as part of the challenge, you also raised money for charity. Um, can you tell me about the charity you picked and sort of how much you raised for them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So they're uh, soft power education. They're a Ugandan NGO that helps children in some of Uganda's poorest areas, and they they work with a. a partner out here called Golf for Good, and Golf for Good are a wonderful charity because they organize these epic endurance challenges around the world from sort of cycling through Vietnam to climbing Kili to walking the Great Wall of China. And they do it in a sort of, you know, they get a group of people here, um, people who live in the UAE, and you raise money for charity as part of it. And one of their charities is Soft Power Education. That's how I got introduced to them. And the reason that they sort of resonated with me so much is that as well as helping General, general children um, through preschool and into uh, to middle school, they also help children with special needs. And over in Uganda, if you've got special needs uh, disability, um, you tend to uh, be ostracized from society. And they tend to blame the mothers who who had the children and the fathers sometimes leave. And it's a really horrible situation. There's not a lot of sort of, sort of welfare out there. And I love this program that basically supports these families and helps these children sort of live these more fulfilled lives and, and become part of their society and break down these stigmas. And I just felt like somebody who's been given so much in life and has been so lucky that it was kind of my duty to give back to to a charity that helps these children and we our target was to raise ten thousand dollars and i think we finished on eleven and a half thousand or something like that so it's and for them it's absolutely phenomenal because they've had a huge hit in their donations because of covid the volunteers have stopped coming because of covid and i think in a really terrible year for them it just is a massive help so and i'm hoping to get out and see them at some point later in the year with frankie
0: That'd be super cool. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. exceptional. Congrats um, for raising so much much for them as well. Tell me a bit about yourself. What hobbies do you have outside of annual endurance challenges?
1: No, not, it's mostly work at the moment. So I'm. Mean, yeah. uh, we started a tech company. I'm the uh, COO and co-founder of that about three years ago. And um, that takes up literally all of my time. So that's alongside uh, spending time with uh, wife and friends and fitness is not yeah. a huge amount left. Uh, it sounds very boring, but yeah. It's well, the no, fitness night.
0: in itself is <laughs> a very good yeah. hobby, but I suppose. I mean, it's going to look after you for the rest of your life. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. you mentioned earlier on the other adventure challenges you've done. So you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, swam the Bosphorus cross-continental race, and you've also completed three marathons in a single day. What was your favourite previous challenge and why?
1: Oh it's, oh, it's so difficult. I loved Kili. I loved, I loved doing that just because it was so epic. And it's the first time I've been in, and I know the, these aren't the sort of the big mountains that I want to get into in the next couple of years in the, in the Himalayas and South America, but for, for a first one to do and one that isn't ridiculously hard, but it's still challenging. It's just beautiful. And it's such a cool mountain to climb. Um, so I love that the Bosphorus is great, but the Bosphorus is over in two hours. So, or no, I think it's an hour and 10 minutes it took. So that's just a very quick one, although everything around that and being in Istanbul and I love traveling. So seeing Istanbul and spending, so my wife came out with me and so whilst I swam, she then was on the sidelines and then we spent two or three days in Istanbul. So that was a great one. Um, Marathon de Sable I've got in October was going to be interesting. I think that one I'm really looking forward to because it's a lot more self-reliant. Even though you're with a lot of other people, you're carrying everything on your pack. Um, Just adds a
0: whole other sort of dimension to the the challenge in itself if you're self-propelled. So would you say that's, would that be the next challenge on your horizon then?
1: It is, yeah. So I was meant to do it in April next year, but I brought it forward to October because actually one of the guys on, on my support team, John, he booked it as well I was sort of halfway through the challenge and I was like oh, I'd love to do it with him because it'd be a great experience for he he did so much for me um yeah. over the challenge as well like he he cooked a lot of the food and he helped with my strapping up my feet and I'd like to sort of give it a little bit back to him so I said to, I promised him that I'd be cooking the the noodles for him this time when we get into camp.
0: <laughs> amazing um, yeah. mm. and is there anything else on your bucket list which you haven't ticked off yet
1: Oh, everything. (laughs) There's not enough time and money in the world to to do everything that I'd love to do. But I think... I think I wanna go into the mountains um, next. Um, I'd like to do that. I was gonna do it in August, but I don't think Europe's looking too good at the moment. So it was gonna be the Alpine trilogy where you'd spend two weeks and you do um, the Matterhorn, the Eiger and Mont Blanc. So I was gonna do that to kind of give me some sort of uh, intermediate climbing experience. Um, But really I want to get into the Himalayas over the next couple of years and start doing some big peaks.
0: That would be epic, that'd be so cool. Um, is there anything else you'd like to plug or give a shout out to before we wrap up
1: no I think I've, I've literally plugged all my sponsors <laughs> all my support crew I, I, I thank my support crew all the time but yeah I do that. Like I, w- I literally wouldn't be here without uh, without them so not only from a safety perspective I probably would have been taken out by a truck but you know they <laughs> keep me fit um, they keep, um, kept me fed and watered and safe and healthy and yeah they, they're the reason why we've got that, char- that uh, challenge record in the end so That's thank incredible. you to them
0: they're like a little shining star. Yep, um, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me on Thinking of Peace, Sean. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks. Awesome.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
0: If you want to support the charities mentioned in this podcast and donate to their cause, you can follow the links in the episode summary to find out more. Thinking of Peace is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucket-list ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds. Head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your left pass.